This is the Crystal Gemcast, the analytical Stephen Universe podcast. Yes, this is the Crystal Gemcast, episode 9, and we're here to talk about a few things that have happened in recent times before giving you the second part of our discussion about families in Stephen Universe. And if you don't think we can, well, it's over, isn't it? It's over, isn't it? Oh, well, actually, it isn't over, but the episode just started. There's gonna be spoilers. Okay, so welcome back. We've been gone for a little while. We were kind of busy with life things. But a lot of things have happened since we have not had episodes. A Stephen Bomb happened, and the Stephen Summer happened. Happening. And not only that, but we got mail! This first message comes from Shelby. Hi, Shelby. So let's just dive right in. Hi, Joseph and Amy, and I assume Sam is implicit in that as well. To answer your question for my favorite citizen of Beach City, I've got to say Sadie. I find she's one of the most human characters on the show. SU gives all its characters great emotional depth, but Sadie feels similar to young women that I actually know. You guys mentioned body positivity in episode 2. I think Sadie also represents that concept. As a short, chubby, and sometimes insecure person, it's great to see someone like myself represented on TV. Thanks! Well, Shelby, I 100% agree. Well... She is also one of my favorite citizens of Beach City. I also relate to her a lot, as I am also a short, chubby, insecure person. And a lot of her feelings around Lars are something I can relate to that I've gone through. And also sort of her uh, issues of identity with her mom. She's great. I wish we had more of her outside of Lars. Like, we got that with Sadie's song, but I'm really hoping for more. You're right, she has a lot of emotional depth for her. A sort of like side character, but I just, I, I want more. What do you guys think? I don't know. I think you hit the nail on the head. I don't have much to add. I definitely agree with what you're saying. The only thing I would add to that is it's just great to see a young adult in such a position of responsibility. Like she's, what, in the 20s and she's already basically running a donut shop all by herself. That's pretty cool. Well, I mean, there was a third character running the donut shop with her and Lars before the incident. We don't want to talk about the incident. No. (laughs) I don't think we're allowed to talk about the incident. This one doesn't have a name attached. I don't know, but after recent episodes, I think Rose Quartz maybe could be said to have histrionic personality disorder, HPD. She was fascinated by eccentricity, always did what she wanted, had many lovers, disregarded rules, etc., etc., You can also see a few HPD traits in Steven, but I think being raised by his dad and having Greg's DNA countered a lot of the symptoms. Honestly, Rose would be the most positive portrayal of HPD I've ever seen, if she is. I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to step in on this one a little bit. I was expecting you to. Well, as the licensed psychologist of the uh, podcast, which again, I'm not. Do not take my word for a fact or anything like that. Just my personal opinion. After looking up a little more about histronic personality disorder, I can see where you're coming from. I can see it. But I don't think so, or at the very least, I don't think there's enough evidence to say that she would be at this point. She did have be implied to have a lot of, like, different lovers and stuff, but I don't think it was as excessive enough to sort of indicate that. Like, Pearl is saying it was now and again, which implies to me that it wasn't, like, constant, you know what I mean? And I don't think she was really like an attention seeker or even that impulsive per se 
a lot of attention was given to her. Like, she was the center of a lot of the gems' lives and Greg's life, like, to the point where after meeting her once, he decides to stay in the city he doesn't know. There's something there, but she doesn't really call for it, you know what I mean? She sort of just gets it. Like, there's something magnetic about her personality. It's not that she's actively doing all these things to get that attention, I don't feel. And I don't think she's, like, a very seductive or, like, sexual person per se, even though she's had a bunch of different relationships. I think it's just okay that she's had a bunch of relationships. I don't really see her having an excessive amount. It seems well within normal limits, especially considering that she was immortal before. And it's, like, over thousands of years. Yeah, and, like, again, we don't really know exactly how many, but we do know it's more than, you know, one or two. Which is okay. I mean, she's allowed to have a sex life. Well, that's true, but I don't think what our viewer is implying that it's bad, but it could be indication of the symptom, which, again, I completely get where they're coming from. I don't think, overall, there's enough evidence to suggest that right now. I don't think it's as serious enough or as excessive to indicate that. I think it's sort of like, it's within reason to act like that, not like, to be excessive enough to be an actual personality disorder. And I think a lot of, like, the attention stuff would be just something she was given rather than something she was actively seeking and trying to make happen. I would agree definitely with Sam on that, in that I don't think that Rose has shown really any signs of being egocentric or being persistently manipulative. It's true, possibly, that Rose might have been keeping a few secrets from people. There's some theories going around that she may have done some um, questionable things during the war, but I don't think we have any proof of that, and I don't think I've ever seen any indication that she was ever manipulative. The only thing I've ever really seen from it is the fact that she may not have told Pearl everything, and she might have possibly accidentally led Pearl into thinking that, you know, that she was her only confidant when... Obviously she wasn't. It might be that she told things, certain things to maybe garnet, but that's literally the only thing I would think of. Well, I mean, Pearl did probably read a bit more into the relationship than there probably actually was. I mean, there was a relationship there, confirmed by Rebecca Sugar herself, but for it being as centric to, you know, the universe revolves around Rose and Pearl as a couple, maybe not that much. Yeah, Another thing I noted on here, it was saying that people with histrionic personalities are like, view relationships that's more deep than they actually are, which I feel like the opposite is true with Rose, that as we would see in the, uh, what's the episode called? We need to talk. That's it. We need to talk. Where, like, she saw her relationship with Greg as, like, less serious than what he saw it as. Like, she sort of saw it as, like, a fling, mostly because, you know, she's immortal, she's lived for thousands of years, and nothing will last for her. Basically, it took Greg to be really serious with her and talk to her to, for her to recognize it was as it could be deeper or that it was deeper, at least for him. So for that, I really feel the opposite is true. And as for Stephen having some of the symptoms, I really don't think so for him. Like, maybe some expositionist um, behavior, maybe. But even then, that was more in the early seasons where, to be frank, he acted more like a child. And he's grown up a lot since then. And... Like, rash decisions, like, again, it's not more than what other people would make, I feel, and things like that. But it was a good thought, and I do get where you're coming from, viewer. So, thank you for writing to us. Yes, it's definitely something that we really appreciate. We are always here for your theories. We have a lot of friends in our Tumblr community who are 
specifically spend a lot of their time coming up with different theories and we appreciate every one of them and we send quite a lot of them out especially the army it's quite good for those sort of things so i would definitely say that if you've got any that you want us to know about or any other sort of mailbag you know where to get us if you don't know we'll let you know in a bit of how you can do that oh man i am a baby do you want to get down yeah and I think now would be a good time for us to move on to what's basically been happening in Steven Universe since we've been gone, which is basically the beginning of Season 3. And in particular, we're talking, of course, about the previous Stephen Bomb, which is the wrap-up of the gem arc and what happened to Jasper and some wonderful times with Peridot and Lapis. Nice to have them back. And the beginning of this new... Well, it's have different names. Most people are going with Stephen Nuke. Personally, I prefer Stephen Barrage because, in my view, a Stephen Nuke would be an entire season's worth of episodes done in one go. Isn't that what this is? Because I thought this was the rest of season three. I just forgot that they actually shortened the seasons. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's a Stephen Nuke then. We've done it. We'll go with it. Let's start, though with the ending of the gem arc and wrapping up basically Peridot's arc because it really is all mostly about Peridot and the introduction of um, of Lapis back into the story. And for me, and I don't know if you guys agree with me, but there's been a lot of feeling that they might have wrapped up the... What's that thing called again? The thing in the centre of the earth. The cluster. Oh yeah, the cluster resolving itself. Yeah, basically, people are a bit concerned that that wasn't as dramatic or as as much oomph as they wanted it to have. What do you guys think? I have a very solid opinion on this, and it is this. What did you expect? If you look into the show and how the narrative is, and if you look into the character, Steven, this was pretty much how it was always going to end. Because with Steven's powers being centered around support, with healing and shields, with his personality being geared towards what Aang would struggle with until the end of the uh, third book. It really was only going to end this way. And looking back, it's sort of like, what did I expect from the end of Mass Effect 3? Because every ending was Paragon, Renegade, and that's it. And uh, we were lucky to get the choices we did. Multicolored. And yes, were our expectations caused to spike because of the hype of the game from, quote, there isn't going to be just A, B, and C ending? Maybe. You know, I mean, that was definitely part of it. But with the patterns of the series and the fact that giving only so much freedom of choice because games need to be some amount of linear with our current technology especially with big games like this. So I can understand where people come from, where they're disappointed that the cluster was essentially shipped into sleep. But honestly, that's how this show is. Not only that, but we did just get through a huge climactic fight with Alexandrite and the Watermelon Steven, with Steven possessing one of them, versus Malachite. So... Considering that, and weren't those two episodes shown back-to-back? Yes, they were. Since they were shown back-to-back, I really think that we already had our huge climactic-for-a-while battle, and it was sort of more okay for Gem Drill to not be the end of Gurren Lagann. I think 
that that is a reasonable point of view. The only thing is, you might have guessed that I'm actually sort of ambivalent about the whole thing. I think it worked okay. I don't think that was the only way they could have done it. And I can see some people's point of view when they said, but we really wanted the Alexandrite versus Malachite fight to be its own episode and to then spend maybe two episodes on the gem drill. You know, like maybe one episode with... Stephen and Peridot in the drill thing going all the way down, and then maybe Stephen starting to meld, and then maybe an episode with him inside the cluster talking to it. Now, I don't know whether that would have worked. That would have taken a lot of effort, and I can see why some other people would turn around and say, no, I kind of like the whole let's sort out the Malachite bit as the drama thing and the drill bit as the more intellectual thing. I don't know. I think either way could have worked perfectly well. we got some brilliant writers here. I just think it's interesting how... It's sort of split opinion, and I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, personally. And I don't think anyone's suggesting there's anything wrong with it. I can see both your guys' points. I was kind of disappointed. Like, I do definitely see where people are coming from with it. My view of it is just, one, I didn't feel like the Malachite fight was even that climactic myself. Like, a lot of that episode was focused on the cute little watermelon people, and that's fair, but Malachite them just sort of finding her and then doing that almost that suddenly felt like it wasn't that climactic and then they went right to the drill where it all happened in one episode. I would have preferred it if the drill and even the Malachite parts were split into two episodes each. Sort of like the jailbreak and the episode before that. I can't remember its name. Um, Message received, I think it was. No, 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 no. It was um, The Return. Maybe that was it. Something like that. But that was a back-to-back episode, just like Watermelon Steven and Jim Drill. It was not two episodes each. Was that? Were they back-to-back? Yeah, they were back-to-back, both on March 12, 2015. Oh, were they? Oh, I didn't quite remember that. Let's go, Gems, to the nearest warp pad. To the nearest warp pad! (laughs) I mean, that being said, you could have had two back-to-back episodes. As in, like, two sets of back-to-back episodes, if you really wanted to. It's weird, really, because... The bomb started with the arc ending, and then we sort of had a long denouement, almost kind of like the scouring of the Shah from Lord of the Rings. You know, sort of, that bit's over, we have to deal with the fallout now, which was good. I like the way they did that, and it helped us, again, Lapis and Peridot, and it's all pretty cool. But I can see why people might be thinking that they wanted to straight things out a little bit more. Yeah. All right, well, then I have a question then for uh, both of you. If it had been two episodes apiece... What do you think could have filled in the extra time? Because you are essentially saying that we need an extra 10 minutes of show to fill. And given how tight Steven Universe episodes are because of that 10 minute time limit, what do you think could have been there without lingering or adding excess? Well, what I think could have happened or what could have worked, maybe they shouldn't have two episodes back to back. There could have been more space, because they're both two sort of different arcs, because, like, they were looking for Malachite even before they really learned about the drill and they were focusing on that. And so, I feel like they could have resolved the Malachite thing first, and then resolved the drill. That's the order they did it Well, in. no, but I mean, I mean, like, more space in between, is what I'm trying to say, not back to back. Oh, okay, I get you now. Because I feel that then it would make each of those arcs feel more complete, rather than sort of tacked on, to be like, well, we're... Or, you know, wrapping up these loose ends here. And if they were two episodes each, I feel like one episode could be, like, Steven actually finding Malachite. Like, it sort of all happened in one episode, right? And there was, like, implications between that. But, like, 
the episode before, maybe focusing more on the watermelons and then him seeing Malachite, and then the next episode being them coming to find Malachite and fighting her. So basically have the watermelon episode be sort of a Samurai Jack-esque, everything's atmospheric and done through motions and no talking. Kind of. And then, like, then the big reveal would be that Steven would see Malachite there and then tell the gems, and then the next episode would be them fighting. That's sort of the way I think could work. I think that Sam has a really good point there. My only actual thing with the fight, I thought it was okay, actually, as one episode. My problem with the fight was that Malachite never looked likely to win. As in, there was never any tension to that fight, in my opinion. It always seemed to me as if Alexandrite had that fight sewn up. And I know it was spectacular. There were some really great bits. I love the fact that they used all the weapons. But a curbstone fight against someone that was built up to be really, really worrying. I mean, not to the cluster level, but still like planet level threat in some ways. And she gets basically beat down in the space of, what, a couple of minutes? It just seems a little off to me. I'm just saying, it's not like she was up against Saitama. Alexandrite was losing until the Watermelon Stevens came by. I mean, it wasn't entirely one-sided. It followed the pattern of an opposite of a rising action, climax, and falling action. And you have to remember that Malachi also had the wear and tear of being physically packed into the ocean for several months. Yeah, I don't know. I can see that, but I don't think I agree. I kind of agree with Joseph, like, when I was watching the episode, the fight was okay, but it was losing some sort of tension. I don't really know why, but it did. It didn't help that Cartoon Network kind of spoiled the fight yeah. by showing it in its entirety in a promo. Well, not in its entirety, but most of it, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I've had some disappointing climaxes in my life. You know, I... Don't make the joke. Don't make the joke! I've been through Fable 2. I've been through... Oh gosh, what else was disappointing? I have been through Dragon Ball GT. That was disappointing. I've been through so many works where it was very disappointing at the end. And honestly, maybe it's just that I've had a lot of disappointment, but I felt that this fight was enough. And yeah, it could have been longer, but I've also, like I just said, been through Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball GT and... You know what? I could use fights that are only a few minutes long instead of several episodes. I don't want several. I just want to, like, two. I know. <laughs> I'm just haunted by the past, Sam. Well, I mean, to be fair, <laughs> Dragon Ball GT was disappointing from the beginning. I don't know why. So, what is the plan? We have a drill. We're going to drill. Speaking of the past, though, let's move on from that bit and let's just talk a little bit about Peridot, a little bit about Lapis, and a little bit about the Rubies, who are kind of the most adorable thing ever. To be fair, Ruby was one of my favourite characters, so to have an entire boatload or shipload of Rubies was a very pleasant surprise. So Lapis is... Emo isn't the right word, because she went through a lot of stuff. She's bitter, and she has good reason to be. But it was just so much, it was so over the top, I didn't expect it. Because, like, that isn't really what we got from her, like, from episodes before, so, like... But fan representation of her tended to be, like, the extremes of Manic Pixie Girl and just this horrid, horrid person that will kill you without a second thought. And honestly, I was just fine to see uh, some balance between it. And Steven Universe has gone over trauma a lot. Amethyst still isn't over kindergarten. 
Pearl isn't over Rose. Greg isn't over Rose. Everybody's not over Rose. And it felt in line with the narrative of the show to have Lapis not be okay. I have to say, though, dang, when she crushed Peridot's tape recorder? My gosh. I mean, perfectly justified. I could understand why she did it. I think that really got through to me, like, how much trauma she'd been under. But I couldn't help but feel sorry for Peridot there. Because even though Peridot's flawed, you could tell she was really, really trying the poor thing. Well, I mean, both can exist and still be correct. I mean, you can still feel sorry for Peridot while understanding... That Lapis is still justified in her feelings. It's not, you know, mutually exclusive. Word. But their dynamic is interesting. Lapis and Paradots. And I'm wondering how it's going to go on from here. I personally don't ship them. But we'll see what happens. I mean, there is hints. This is the thing. We're very much in a situation where... It's not just one relationship that's possibly Polly. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not one to talk. I'm not Polly. But for Gems, they might all be. Or many of them might be. Because we have Peridot, who seems to be showing possible feelings for both Lapis and... Amethyst. Yes, Amethyst. Speaking of, we actually had, not confirmation per se, but while uh, Rebecca Sugar did confirm Pearl and Rose having a relationship, at least at some point, it does lend a likelier chance to the theory that Rose was polyamorous. There have been fans shipping polyamorous ships since day one, which is okay, but canonically, we haven't had really much to support anything until then. And we are getting more text than subtext in the show almost every episode, with Pearl and Rose in particular. People have been saying that Pearl is straight for the longest time, and so the show repeatedly shows her holding a hand gingerly of, from the hologram, the lyrics of do it for her, and then the dream during Chili Teed. And now what we finally have, it's over, isn't it, from the episode Mr. Greg. And I'm so glad this has become more text because a lot of shows are content to keep it in subtext. And so people can have their cake and eat it where they are not being too controversial but they're giving a wink and a nod to the queer community, and it's it's been somewhat of a suffocating relationship on our end. And it's good to see, you know, a breath of fresh air that is more confirmation of Pearl and Rose. In other couples, we have Ruby and Sapphire openly flirting in plain view of the viewer, openly saying that they are flirting, openly saying that they are a couple, unless you're from Sweden. Did they change that in Sweden? I, I think it was Sweden. Or was it Norway? At least it wasn't us this time. How could they have uh, gone over the fact that they, like, Sapphire kissed her on the cheek? How? They cut it. Oh, you know what? Makes sense. Good point. And uh, they cut the part where they fuse back together at the end on the uh, Hit the Diamond episode. How does that even work? They had Sapphire starting to jump, and then they cut straight to Garnet being fully formed. And they changed around the lines at the end where Sapphire's like, all I want to do is look at you, though. And they changed that around to... I want to win, but I can't think of anything else but winning. Oh my gosh. I can't believe it was even possible. It was so obvious. Like, with the We Need to Talk episode with Rose and Pearl's dance, like, you can kind of get around the subtext of that and, like, take some stuff out. Like, you can. But, like, the entire episode was about how they wanted to be back with each other so badly that they, like, almost ruined the entire plan. Like, that, that was the plot. They did ruin the entire plan. Exactly! <laughs> that was the entire plot! Because they were useless! 
Yes, they weren't able to save the great and lovable Peridot, the leader of the Crystal Gems. What? I also agree, like, the more blatant, like, text stuff about LGBT stuff is great. Like everything, it still needs work, but it's probably one of the, the most positive representations of that in children's media. I mean, there's not a lot of competition because they usually don't tread that, but still. It's better than most other media, to be completely honest. Especially regarding pronouns and being outside of the gender binary. Jenny knows at least who Steven is and knows that Stevani was Steven plus at least someone else, if not knowing Connie herself. And knowing that, Jenny still uses they pronouns. And you could say it was because that she knew it was two people and thus you used a plural pronoun. However, given that the official pronouns of her from the Twitter of one of the writers or storyboarders, I forget who it was is they them. Jenny consistently used those pronouns during so when it would have been very easy to have either made a joke about the confusion of the pronouns to just misgender them straight up, but that didn't happen. And the fact that it was treated with sincerity and that we didn't uh, have a huge to-do about it and that it was normalized was very nice. Yeah, I'm really happy that Rebecca Sugar came out as by. Not only for, really, you know, my own reasons, but also because it really shows, like, where she's coming from with all this, like, amazing representation and where, like, because she knows what it's like and she knows about the community and, like, having that personal connection to it really does translate well for the show where it is very positive in those regards and, like, especially for a cartoon show. So the way that she is, like, putting herself and her identity in the show to be able to explore those themes and have other people feel like it's okay is great. And I am happy about it. So am I. I'm happy about it. Do you know what I'm happy about? What? We were talking before about mental health recently, and we found out more about Lars, and that's led to me thinking a bit more about whether or not Lars might be depressed. I personally think he is, again, just from my own personal experiences of having depression. But also, um, it was interesting that we got a great uh, Peridot episode recently. Before we get to uh, Peridot, can we have a second opinion on the Lars thing? Because while Joseph and I agree, I do want to hear from someone who is closer to an expert uh, regarding Lars and possible depression, i.e. Sam. It's me, just so we all know. I'm not a psychologist, but I am a psychologist, so let me explain to you why. <laughs> I don't know. I <laughs> see my professional opinion is I don't know, maybe. I never really got that. Like I can see where Joseph was coming from, like with the way that he sort of acts around other people and like the episode where he's like, Do you ever feel lonely when you're around other people? I honestly feel like that was probably a joke from the writers, which wouldn't be great, but it probably was. And other than that, like, he's is very irritable, which can be a big part of depression. And doesn't necessarily seem to be happy a lot, so I can see that, but I don't know. I never really myself got that vibe, but... If I may add some evidence to that, from the new Lars, we get a, a small glimpse into the home life and the school life of Lars. and. 
Yes, while we know he can be a jerk and that it's affected his social relationships, we've never seen him at home. And first of all, his grades are all in the toilet, which either means he is entirely blowing them off, which I guess is one interpretation, or he is suffering from depression and has found that he can't get the energy to do assignments or make it to class many days, and hence so many Fs and the one B. But there's also this one line that really caught my eye, or caught my ear, <laughs> with the parents saying, we let you move back into the attic, which implies that at some point, either Lars was in some other part of the house, which is, again, also equally valid, or Lars had previously moved out of the house trying to be self-sufficient, was not able to, and then moved back into the house, but into the attic. And this might imply, with the current theory that he has depression, is that he was unable to take care of himself through having no energy to do so. Or maybe being passively suicidal while living by himself. <gasps> Lars is gonna be psyched! Buck is pleased to throw some personal things in there. I went to university and I couldn't really look after myself when I was there. It was partly my fault for, in as much as I didn't go and get any help, which is a bit silly, but I tried to do it myself and I ended up in a bit of a mess and eventually things worked themselves out. I got my degree, um, I got a job eventually, but I still am living at home, you know, and I know that part of, sometimes a lot of people live at home because it's necessity and there's nothing wrong with that, I don't think. But for me, it's just because I don't feel like I'm in the position right now where I could live by myself. I need people around me because my mood just, I can't stand being alone. I can't do it. And I can understand that people can look at Lars's situation and read it a different way. And I understand maybe it's just that my own life is colouring my perception of Lars. I associate with him, you know, because I can see bits of myself in him. It's... Things like that that's made me understand more about representation in regards to other things. Because I've just realised that if just a person possibly having depression means that much to me, how much um, all these other representation that Steven Universe must be doing for everyone out there who needs it, you know? That is a very good point, and I, I agree with that. Like, I, I don't know if I personally believe that, but I, I believe your feelings and your association with it. So I would probably trust you more with it than I would myself. It's up to interpretation, and I agree that even the possible representation of depression or autism or LGBT and things like that is just really good, especially since it's overall fairly positive representation, although with Lars, they do sort of show him in a not-great light, so I don't know how... Like, even with depression, he is a jerk. Well, yeah, like, he's allowed to be a jerk and have depression, but I'm saying, like, representation of him possibly like being a jerk because he's depressed could be a bad connotation. Now I'd agree with that to a point, although I will say that it implied that Lars is a jerk because he's depressed. It seems more to me that it's affecting him socially in some ways, but I think it's often it's the result of his own choices that's getting him in the mess with the people around him, in that he's disaffected trying to be cool. It's almost like he's acting in a way that he doesn't necessarily want to be. I mean, he is always going to be sarcastic. I think the episode shows that that sort of side of him isn't necessarily bad. But I don't think he necessarily wants to be like someone like Ronaldo. We know that Ronaldo, from that um, episode directly after 
jailbreak. Full disclosure. Yeah, full disclosure. The reason I bring that up is because in that episode, Ronaldo basically sells Steven on the whole very much the stoic sort of you can't get close to people sort of thing. And I think in some ways, I don't know, I just always found that interesting because it's almost like Lars is sort of cocooning himself away from other people. Maybe I'm misreading that. Maybe I've got nothing there, but it's find it interesting. Agreed. Now, throughout the Vegeta-fication, I'll say, of <laughs> Peridot, have gone through episodes that tell us more about her person and how she interacts. In regards to Too Far, It Could Have Been Great, Back to the Barn, Log Date 7.15.2, and most of all, lately, Too Short to Ride. We have seen many of Peridot's reactions and actions to Earth and her situation and just interaction period. And it leads a lot of credence to uh, the theory that uh, Peridot is autistic. True. Although what I first like to say is that I see it more as a uh, Zuko phenomenon rather than Vegeta. Okay, yeah, I'll grant you that. Go! Why am I so bad at being good? Yeah, there's a lot of things that could indicate that. Um, One thing is that her special interest would be technology. And Camp Pining Heart. Yeah, especially the pairing of Pierre and Percy. And a lot of people see her use of the uh, tape recorder and then the tablet as, like, her stim toy, per se. Like, it's the way that she's able to sort of have the stimulation and be able to calm herself down or, you know, just be absorbed in that thing. Also, the way that she doesn't really get sarcasm, she reacts Perhaps inappropriately to some situations, she can shut down when she's upset and not be able to really respond, like she did when um Amethyst was trying to talk to her and she just sort of played on her tablet throughout that. I can see it. I'm still unsure if they're trying to portray that or if they're trying to portray it more as a alien on a new planet. I've also seen theories that it also relates to, in addition to autism, physical disabilities, in that it, she is coded to be at least paraplegic, if not quadriplegic. I can also see that, although I'm not 100%. That could also be true, but I'm unsure if that's um, the intention or it's just trying to show her as, like, you know, an alien on a strange new planet and she doesn't really get its ways and she's new. Like, she's actually literally new. She's a new paradox, as we learned. But I don't know. I mean, with a lot of the things in the past of Steven Universe, they've come to surprise us because there's a lot of times they could have taken a sharp turn and said, oh, yeah, Ruby and Sapphire are really good friends and Pearl really admires Rose, you know, and and Steven wore that dress because it was funny. And they could have taken those very sharp turns and they didn't. Mm -hmm. And so considering what they've done every other time, maybe she's not coded to be quadriplegic, as some have said. She's not Farah. But I do think that she is coded to be autistic and that she has shown as much, if not more, signs of being so than Pearl. I'll add to that in saying that I definitely feel that her, I forgot what they call that suit that she used to wear before Amethyst threw it away, was sort of meant as a thing of assistive technology. In fact, when you look at everything that Peridot uses, from the tape recorder to the tablet, also to the her suit, they're all sort of things that help her to be in the same league as everyone else. In as much as when you look at that episode and she she has that fear 
or that belief that she's sort of not worth it to the point that she doesn't even get powers and that she has to rely on technology. And I think that, you know, in the end, I feel like Amethyst, I know I can see why Amethyst was trying to do what she was trying to do. I think the show does portray her as being wrong in throwing the tablet away. I think that in some ways, I hope that she may start to realise, oh no, Peridot probably did need her suit. This suit is not bad for her. It's something that helps her in her life. We all use assistive technology, let's be honest. Even people that may not have any learning needs or anything like that, let's be honest, every technology we use is assistive. We mm-hmm. use our laptops to communicate, to get work done quicker. You know, And this idea that some people have in this world that you shouldn't rely on technology... People aren't using it to rely on technology. People are using it to do things that they couldn't do, you know? And I'm just getting, getting off my soapbox here, but I'm glad that Steven Universe tackled that. Come on, Joseph. Everyone knows that the lever, the pulley, the wheel, and axle, and the inclined plane, and the wedge, and the screw are just excuses to make weak people stronger. Who needs water displacement? Who needs Archimedes and Pythagoras? I don't get the joke. I don't get Jasper? the joke. I get that you're quoting Jasper, but I don't get the joke. Because technology bad. And those are simple machines. Now I get the joke. Now I get the joke. (laughs) It's a joke that I get now. Now I get the joke. It wasn't that funny. (laughs) Shing! Sorry for using the same pun twice. That's not a pun, but I forgive you. Relating to our previous episode, which is the second part of, kind of, at this point, it's sort of its own episode, we did get to see a bit more insight into the Vidalia family. Vidalia, Yellowtail, Onion, and Sour Cream. In particular, the deadbeat dad of Sour Cream, Marty. Who looks like a shark. Yeah, so we get more insight on that sort of dynamic. First off, with there still being a conflict between Sour Cream and Yellowtail about his career, which, something I found interesting is how, like, Despite their sort of differences, when Sour Cream started to get upset, he sort of talked in Yellowtail's language. And so it shows them more of a connection that way, like, even though they aren't blood-related and they have conflicts, they still have that connection as a family. And I thought that was really interesting, especially since, you know, in the end, Yellowtail showed support for him playing his music and stuff, which was awesome. And the uh, deadbeat dad aspect of it is something I am pretty familiar with, with the whole dad not being around for, like, months or years, and it sort of like, suddenly comes up and is like, oh, hey, you know, was busy doing other stuff, you know, <laughs> just trying to drop in and try and sort of get as much attention as they can without putting in as much effort. That's a really big family dynamic that, like, a lot of kid shows don't really touch on. Or if they do, it's a bit over the top. Like, I, I feel as if it's a pretty... Well, okay, it is still over the top, because he's a scumbag millionaire. Well, I don't know. I think it did well, and I think it was rather subdued. I mean, the only other show that I know has done this really well was one single episode of The Fresh Prince. That is a brilliant episode. It was probably the best performances that I've seen from both Will Smith and James Avery in that episode. And it was just really raw. And And that guy was Shredder. Yeah, he was a lot of things, but it was a very dramatic scene. And it really didn't, or really exaggerate. It was a straight shooting episode. And I think that Drop Beat Dead, while a bit formulaic, did much the same. Yeah. 
I think it's great to sort of tackling that issue because again, a lot of shows don't really try. And if they do, it's not that well. And I feel as if the fact that they're showing more of like that dynamic of the non-nuclear family where like divorces or breakups happen and things get messy when there's multiple sides of a family and some of them don't know each other as well and like there's a dad out there in the picture like it's great to see that they're exploring more family things like that like i didn't know when we saw the episode focusing on uh Vidalia and stuff that we would even ever see marty again and see that sort of dynamic and i'm glad that we did because i think it's really important for like kids to see that and to see like you know their situation happens to a lot of other people and that they don't have to deal with a deadbeat dad who just comes up once in a while to take something and then leave so yeah now it's time for the second half of our discussion about family in steven universe if you haven't listened to the first part you can always check out our previous episode. And if you find just jumping in right where we are, well, just keep listening. What I learned by researching this episode and really thinking about it is that Universe really treats family as more like who is there to support you and who loves you rather than just who is blood related. Like, those who are there for you and care about you are all the family you really need. And family does not have to be defined as something really like you know narrow and specific and that there are many other types of families that exist and are represented in the universe which shows different ways of being able to be a happy family which is awesome also i want to address something that we don't have written down it just came to me okay so pd aside who's almost always in close proximity to the Fryman establishment we're dealing with latchkey kids I mean, not in the literal sense of everybody's at work and they have keys to go home and have to do things in themselves, but they are free-range latchkey kids, essentially. Steven and Connie have a lot of free reign, even with her strict parents at the beginning of the series, allowed her to go to a beach to read a book. And then we have Steven, who pretty much roams around the town, especially the boardwalk, and we have the cool kids in Ronaldo and Lars and Sadie, none of whom could be older than the early 20s and are essentially very, very independent. And so I'd like to discuss that for at least a little bit. Because me, I was very sheltered, but I do know that in America, at the very least, there is a culture that doesn't let kids go very far, as opposed to a lot of countries, especially countries like Japan, where kids are allowed to have a lot more freedom to roam from their parents. I can confirm that Britain's a lot like America in that way. It also depends on your age, though, because I know that a lot of people, when they get to their 20s, are given that sort of freedom, at least in my country, because it's sort of an age-graded thing. Like, the older you get, the sort of more you give them, like, more responsibility. But none of them get to see much as Stephen does. That's the thing. Yeah, Stephen and Connie do more at 12 and 13 and 14 than, you know, most of us did. And most of us were Timmy Turner. We were expected to be home right after school. And even then we had adult supervision, whether it's from parents or a babysitter. I think I've heard recently from other people that it's becoming more now that it's sort of like, we want to have supervision on you at all times. We want to always know where you are and should always be home. But I mean, 
I remember growing up that even though I would be expected to have some sort of supervision, I was still allowed to go all around the neighborhood to play. I would still, like, you know, be able to go to my friend's house and do other stuff, like, outside of the house. Especially around, like, 11 or 12, where I think that was around the time I was allowed to stay home for a bit of time. Just sort of being able to have that sort of responsibility. And they may be coming a little more sheltered now in American society. Although I'm Canadian, but same thing, basically. To let them hear you say that. <laughs> no, Canada is so much better. Or vice versa. There's no Canada like French Canada. It's the best Canada in the land. The other Canada is hardly Canada. If you lived here for a day, you'd understand. I guarantee you that the way things are have been that way for quite a while. And while you were able to uh, go through your neighborhood and while I had next door neighbor that I was familiar with that my parents were okay with me visiting when I was really young, there's that whole thing where Stephen goes around the entire city. The car wash has to be at least 10, 20 miles out of the way. The donut shop is on the boardwalk and all the businesses are on the boardwalk. So it's a short few couple blocks away from the temple, but he does go pretty much anywhere he wants in the city. That is true, although that might be to do more so just with the fact that, you know, he doesn't really live with his dad anymore. And the gems, because they are, don't have that much experience with, like, kids and how much supervision they really need, they probably don't always feel as if he needs to be supervised at all times, or at least not in a way that some other modern parents would think. That's true, but then that doesn't explain Connie, does it? Because she has very strict parents. Now, that might be because they trust her. But they also work a lot, right? Yeah, that's true. And that's why I said latchkey kid, because that's a very important term. Like, that was so taboo. Like, if you were a latchkey kid in America, it was considered a little bit short of an insult. Because when you were called a latchkey kid, it was implied that your parents were lazy and didn't care. And didn't really take into account the circumstances that every individual set or single amounts of or more parents faced. That's really interesting because that never had that sort of issue where I live. It seems to be a very common thing here and to the point where it's not considered an insult. It's probably just values dissonance from one country to another. Mm. But over here, there is a really close watch on kids. Uh, a lot closer well, there is than- here, though. This is what I mean. It's down to that whole gender thing again, I think, because I think there might have been that expectation if you're a kid of a certain age, one of your parents should have a job. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on women to take permanent maternity leave. Another common way of doing it is taking jobs that allow them to do part-time work. So they would work for most of the day, but then they would leave work to go and collect their kids from school. But it's such a rare thing because you don't really see that outside of cartoons where... You know, it's usually treated as complete fantasy that the kids have as much free reign as they do. Like the Rugrats who consistently evade uh, watching or Danny Phantom or Kim Possible where even when they're not saving the day, they're still going out to all these events around town. To be fair, Kim is near the end of her school life. So she's, what, 15, 16? So that is sort of the area where people do start to get given a bit more responsibility. Yeah, I feel the idea of, like, the latchkey kids probably became more controversial, probably around the time where more women were working inside the home, and so both parents were working, so then there started to be the need to have, like, babysitters and outside, like, watch for the kids, or, like, to give the kids more responsibility, and 
that was sort of like, you know, trying to like be like, well, I mean, this wouldn't be a problem if the mother just stayed home like she was supposed to. And then when you think about it, though, there's also that panic because sometimes bad things happen to kids, unfortunately. That fear of the stranger in the bush. Even though that's completely ridiculous because statistically that doesn't even... Yeah, statistically it doesn't happen, but that's what in a lot of our media is pushed as, and we never really see the people we know as the people who do wrong. So I think that has gotten into the uh, subconscious of the societal norms and that we're all afraid of the stranger in the alley or the bushes that's going to magically pop up and do something horrible and never ever be caught. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. But I also see it as a way that, like, people are worried about it because, especially if there's, like, other people watching their kids when both parents are at work or something, mm-hmm. there's the idea that, like, oh, they're not getting the proper parental... Not nutrition, what's the word I'm looking for? Proper care? N- nurturing! Nurturing! Yes, there we go. There's this idea that they're not getting the proper, like, parental nurturing, especially from the mother, and that they'll be raised to be more of, like, hooligans and not proper values because both their parents dared work, especially the mother who was just she was supposed to stay home and give nurturing to the children, and now they're gonna be more out reckless and doing a bunch of stuff when the parents aren't there and blah 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 blah. But I think it's proving more to be not much of an issue. Like, it can be, but it mostly isn't. So, I think because society is getting more accustomed to the idea of, you know, both parents working and them not being on home all the time, like, it gives student viewers the room to have children who are able to, you know, do stuff outside the house and have a little more free reign because there's less of that fear, or at least there's more room to show that that's not always, like, a bad thing. Plus, Stephen can make a bubble around himself, so if anything happens, you know. Yeah, Stephen's fine. I don't know about Connie, though, but, I mean, as long as she's with Stephen, that's fine. Everybody else in Beach City, I don't know. They laughed when I accused my parents and I killed them. Let's see if they'll be laughing now. Morbid. Oh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. There's an entire movie called I Accused My Parents. Offer burnt sacrifices to the almighty truck farmer. Hail truck farmer. Hail truck farmer. Well, Sam's sort of already given her wrap up slightly early. So, Ami, what would you say is your takeaway from this? Representation. I mean, we've said that a lot during the psychiatry episodes, and we're probably going to be saying it a lot in our next episode that has to do a lot with the LGBT community. And that representation often really, really matters. It happens a lot where you see the characters on TV that aren't like you, and you have to sort of force yourself to learn to... Guys, can you help me out here? Relate to them? Yeah, relate. Yeah, you have to relate to these characters that aren't like you, and, you know, we tend to do so quite successfully. But when a character that comes on that's like us, in one way or another, it feels like we're finally being acknowledged. You know, I've known a lot of people that had a lot of pressure to conform to the Brady standard, the, uh, what was the last names of a- uh, Andy and Opie? I don't know what you're referring to, so I can't help you out there. The Griffith family from the Andy Griffith show, you know, the the squeaky clean nuclear family that has a lot of bubblegum problems at most, and there's a lot of pressure to conform to that. But to see, you know, someone like us up there... You know, it helps validate us a little bit. I completely agree with that. For example, 
the Onion family is something that I really do relate to just because my family feels so similar to that because my parents both had separated with other people and then they got together and then they brought, you know, their own kids to the family. So it was a complete mix of these two different families and just the way that they treated it and the way that the sort of, with the different problems that were in that family and like the similarities to my own, it was just, it did really make me feel a little more validated because I saw something that was so similar to my own, which you don't often see as much in, you know, children's media. So with the intersections of mental health, of family types, of sexual orientation, of gender and varying gender expressions, all that comes to a show that truly gives a larger audience something to finally hold on to that looks like them. So would you say that it would give the people of this world something to believe in? Yeah. Which would be Garmet, Amethyst, Emperor, and Steven? And Peridot. And Greg. And Amadot, and Lapidot, and Pearl, Mephist, and... Camathot, and Momadot. Camelot! Even from here I hear your call! Joseph, what are your closing thoughts on this episode? Please permit me to get onto my soapbox. Homer Simpson, the Griffins, Peg Bundy. We have had a lot of things in the media recently with really, really terrible parenting. Peg Bundy's recent? Well, recent enough. I mean, it, it goes against the whole stereotypical Brady thing you were talking about. And the thing is, while that was fine for a time because it was pushing against a stereotype, I find it really refreshing that I think every parent we see, all the families that we see here in Steven Universe, they're all trying, that they all care for each other, that they're all trying, even when they're finding it difficult. And although there's still wounds there, especially like, again, loss of Rose and all that stuff like that and all the situations that they're being put through that they're all keeping together. You know, they're a really, really strong family unit now, Stephen's family, and it means a lot to me. I would have liked a hug. I like it that their bond is not that they love each other despite their personalities. They love each other despite their hardships, which is a very good distinction because Homer especially and uh, Peter Griffin, characters like them, they rely on a lot of the exaggeration of the parody of the sitcom Dad that dates back even to The Honeymooners. So they didn't have to do much to be a parody, but when you got your King of Queenses and stuff like that, a lot of our parody shows like Family Guy and The Simpsons had to escalate in turn, and it sort of escalated each other as the parody then became the trope played straight. And then so we get a bunch of jerks with a heart of gold that bumble and or selfish, and the women, specifically the wives, usually have to clean up the messes. But even more modern than that, looking at Family Guy, they started to subvert that, so you had, you know, Lois. Well, I, I don't think they started to subvert that, because Peter's still very selfish. He's worse. Yeah, Peter is worse. And I think that, that with Greg, we have a guy that legitimately tries, and he... It comes from a place of selflessness and love as opposed to the motivations of the usual sitcom dad that has a lot of weight on him. And then we see a lot different dynamic with the gems in that they support Steven, but they don't necessarily have to clean up all the messes. 
and that they aren't there as the solution to the, all the problems, and they are allowed to be more of their own people that have their own problems. Yeah, exactly. And in the end, Greg was the one that brought up Stephen from when he was, what, however old he was when he went to go and live with the gems? He would have been about, what, five, six? Five, five-ish. Because when we go back into the photo album, the five-ish year old Stephen looks the most like the extended theme song Stephen from San Diego Comic-Con. Greg's a really cool character, and even a character like Mayor Dewey, who, let's be honest here, Dewey's quite flawed, although he still means well. Yeah. For all his flaws, he still tries to be a good father, and I think that's something we don't see much now, and it means quite a lot, I think. What I really like is, sort of going on your point, Joseph, that there's different types of families, and none of them are shown to be a wrong way to have a family. Yeah. They all still really care about each other no matter what the situation is, no matter what the hardships are. None of the families are seen as lesser for what situation they are in. Like, for example, with how the gems sometimes feel like they can't raise Steven very well, like in the uh, the test, where they're worrying that they didn't have the ability to raise him in the way that they were supposed to. And some of the struggles with the uh, Onion family and some of the conflicts there. Despite all that, None of the families are shown to be, like, the wrong way to have a family and the wrong way to love in a family. Like, they're all treated as just, like, different realities. They're just how they are, and they still love each other, and none of them are just treated as, like, an abnormality or as, like, a flaw. And that's something that's really important, especially because a lot of people can see different types of families and say, oh, they can't be happy in that family, or, oh, they can't be raised well in that sort of family. That can't happen. But they're all treated like equally. Yeah, sort of like with Rugrats. While we didn't see a lot of diversity, like Betty is the main breadwinner in her family and is the dominant one. And Angelica's mom and dad are very successful, but in very demanding jobs. And Charles is a single dad. And while we get the representation, it's played for laughs. Because we're supposed to laugh at how uh, meek Howard is. Because, you know, that's not what we're supposed to do. And we are supposed to laugh at how how out of touch Drew and Angelica's mom are. We're supposed to laugh that Charles doesn't know how to do a lot of things because he's a single dad. And so while we have that representation there, it was often as the joke. Like with Chester McBadbat, his single dad living in shame is supposed to be a joke, uh, along with his poverty status. With Steven Universe, it's all played seriously, and all the laughs come from the situations and conflicts between personalities rather than, haha, they are X instead of Y. With the conflict of uh, Yellowtail and Sour Cream, where uh, Yellowtail really wants Sour Cream to following his footsteps as a fisherman, but he wants to be a DJ, and Vidalia refuses to take a side and instead takes a very laissez-faire approach to it and letting them express themselves and be who they are. And that also brings in Onion, who is very, very expressive, but not always appropriate. And so, you know, a lot of the comedy from the situations and a lot of the drama from the situation arise from the personalities of everyone, as opposed to, like I said, haha, they aren't. X instead of Y. What's going on? Oh, whenever Sour Cream starts DJing, it uses all the electricity in the house. Good thing Yellowtail's not here. It drives him nuts. Dude, your house is jacked. Yeah, 
And on your point about the Rugrats, I'm also thinking of how it's very much implied that Angelica is such a brat because both her parents are working and they're not paying enough attention to Angelica and that's seen as the wrong way to do it. I mean, to be fair with that, though, the difference is that it's not because they're the high-powered people, it's the fact that they just spoil Angelica. That is kind of that difference, isn't it? Well, I think that it's partially implied that because of their vast amount of wealth and uh, how busy they are, that it contributes to them spoiling Angelica but not supporting her emotionally. Yet, Dee Dee is a full-time teacher, and Stu is a- an inventor constantly working in his basement. But yet, because they're not rich... They are seen as more normal and relatable, and thus Tommy magically is more morally superior to Angelica. There is also the fact that their grandpa's there, which means they have someone to look after him, even though he spends most of his time asleep, but he is at least there. True, but they're seen as so responsible and normal that they're the place that the kids get dumped off at the same time. Whether it's just an excuse to not have to animate several different houses, which I might think is, is part of the reason, because so they didn't have to design all those houses and keep up with everything all the time. I do think that there is a narrative in the Rugrats that says that because Stu and Dee Dee are middle class, that their busyness is seen as a sign of ardor and not a sign of neglect. Whereas Drew... And uh, I can't remember her name. Charlotte. Charlotte. Yeah, with Drew and Charlotte, their hard work is attributed to part of their neglect, partly because of their success, especially Charlotte's. And so there is an underlying current of what is right, what is wrong, according to the show, just from how character dynamics work. And there is a slight bent of sexism in that too, but there is this underlying message that Stu and Dee Dee are the correct family, or are the most correct and most together, despite the fact that they are just as dysfunctional as the rest, if not more. Yeah. But that's Steven Universe for you. It's an island of sincerity in a world of parody and dysfunction. Congratulations! Congratulations, Steven! Yeah! Congrats, little man! So that's pretty much it for this episode of the Crystal Gemcast. But before we go, here's some things you may want to know about how to support us and how to contact us. To start off with, the best way to support the podcast is to go onto iTunes and give us a subscribe and a review. Every review you give makes it much easier to find us. And also, we'd really appreciate it if you have any friends that like Steven Universe, please pass this show on to them. Tell them about us. We'd really appreciate that. If you want to comment on anything we've got here, if you want something read out on the podcast, all you need to do is to contact us. There's multiple ways of doing that. The most direct way is to send an email to crystalgemcast at gmail.com. You can send a message to us on our Tumblr or on our Facebook pages. We'll tell you about how to find those in a second. Or just comment on our website. Yes, all of our episodes and a lot of our other content can be found at crystalgemcast.com. As we mentioned before, we're on Facebook. Just search for Crystal Gemcast. We have both our own page and we have our own listeners group. The listeners group is there for you to post wherever you want. That's Steven Universe related. So come, join our community there. We're also on Twitter. Again, just Crystal Gemcast. And one of our most popular places is Tumblr. TheCrystalGemcast.tumblr.com And generally we love to reblog lots of stuff there, including lots of theories. We've been 
following a lot of theorists recently to be able to reblog their best thoughts directly to you. So thanks very much for all the support you've given us so far, and we always appreciate that you got our backs. So thank you very much for listening. I'm Joseph. I'm Amy. And I'm Sam. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the Crystal Gemcast, where we'll probably have a lot to talk about in regards to the summer of Stephen. And remember, we're suntan lotion. We don't want you getting burned. Bye. 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 Too much Stephen can make you burn. If I could begin to be half of what you think of me, I could do about anything. I could even learn how to love. When I see the way you wept, wondering when I'm coming back, I could do about anything. I could even learn how to love like you. That was the Crystal Gemcast. The ending song, Love Like You, was written by Rebecca Sugar and performed by Sam. Steven Universe was created by Rebecca Sugar and is a production of Cartoon Network Studios. Thanks for listening.